It's the Alexandra and Friends podcast, and we're covering the everyday issues of life, health, and wealth. And as always, we have a great panel of experts with us. Here is your host, Alexandra Fincher. Hey, everyone. This is Jose Gillian, the owner of All House Barbecue, located in Louisville and Carrollton. You can find us at allhousebbq.com, and we are the proud new sponsor of Alexandra and Friends. Come and see us. Good evening. Welcome to Alexander and Friends 660 The Answer. Thank you so much for showing up on Saturday night for our regular show and for an evening with life, health, wealth, and love process. So this evening, we have an exciting evening. We've got a very good guest. Courtney's still out. She's still uh, feeling mm-hmm. those pains from her tummy tuck. Billy Tatum is here tonight. Hello, everyone. And he's grumpy tonight, so please disregard him. You know oh. how he is. And, of course, Michael Clark, our producer and sometimes jumps into our shows and we're going to have an exciting very very wonderful guest this evening that uh, you're going to be very proud to listen to and i will introduce him in just a minute but right now we're going to take just a minute so that we can listen to the clark children give us the pledge of allegiance we'll be right back i pledge allegiance to the flag of the united states of america and to the republic for which it stands one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all Welcome back to Alexander and Friends, brought to you by Roberto Perez at Miller Title and Old House Barbecue in Carrollton, Texas. And today we are sitting with, well, somebody else is going to, have to say this name first, I guess. <laughs> Dr. Khan. No, his first name. <laughs> his first name, yeah. Dr. Fouad. Fouad Khan. Khan. Yes, okay, right. great. Yes. Dr. Fouad Khan. And uh, doctor, what do you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thank you for having me here, first of all, and uh, it's my first time on the radio show, so it's um, going to be interesting for me. So okay. um, I am a psychiatrist, and I'm currently working with Parkland uh, Health, and I'm a senior vice president there and oversee the behavioral health part of Parkland's uh, okay. mission. And behavioral health, for people who don't really understand what that means. Yeah, so for behavioral health is kind of the new lingo for mental health mm-hmm. or uh, psychiatry or psychology, if you will. It, it kind of um, it, it's like uh, the whole thing together. We call it behavioral health now. Okay, so that's the new way of saying it. All right. Well, it's an amazing month because this month is dedicated to mental health okay. awareness, and with all these situations that are going on around in in our country, which are pitiful. Yeah, it's it seems like there's a there's something either evil or mental, which I'm, I can't figure this out. So that's why Dr. Khan's here today. Uh, Dr. Khan, give us exactly what is your uh, position with the hospital, your, your whole Dr. Fode, Khan, what? You have a very, very... Do you just Well, I guess what she's probably asking is, do you oversee other doctors only, or do you have your own patients? I currently am not seeing patients directly. I used to, and I still do at times. Uh, but I oversee the the implementation of the mental health policy that Parkland is developing, the programs that they are trying to put in place, and 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 the strategy that we are developing okay. around mental health. So you're the chief of psychiatry. So you're right. basically doing consultations with other doctors and setting those things up. And and other executives and nursing leaders and okay. everybody combined. All right. And you have some great things that you want to do for the children of uh, the Dallas area. We're hoping to. To do We're that. We're hoping to. Have you started any of those projects yet? Yes, the projects have started to kick off now. Uh, you know, we needed a little time to create an infrastructure to hire the right people and um, expand the services in a, in a manner where they'd be practical. Uh, so we're already starting to do that. Okay. And do you, does your, I guess your place at work, you deal with children only or everyone? No, everyone. Okay. Everyone. All right. Tell us a little bit about Parkland Hospital. What, what kind of hospital? This is a county hospital, correct? Yeah, Parkland is a county hospital. It's a uh, large hospital. Hospital, oh, 870 beds, uh, and it has one of the largest emergency rooms in the country. Actually, the number of emergency room visits, I think, tops the whole country. Wow. Um, and um, we have uh, several outpatient community clinics and specialty clinics. Uh, we work very much together, hand-in-hand, with Uni- uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Oh, yes. Uh, that's the medical school. So we are a county hospital affiliated with an academic medical center. So a lot of uh, our faculty is 
uh, actually UT Southwestern faculty, um, and uh, we deliver care combined. We we usually provide mostly provide the nursing support and all the infrastructure, and we also have some of our own physicians as well, uh, who also deliver care. And then UT Southwestern is like hand in hand, I and mean, yeah. we work together. So you guys have work study programs with them too, right? So that'd be yeah. a good way to recruit, right? People exactly. for Parkland, yeah, train, recruit. You know, the, um, it's a continuing big training, education, continuing education, yeah. research. Oh, That's yeah. great. I actually yeah. haven't heard of a college being tied to a yeah, the, county yes, hospital. This is very, very, very good. Tell us a little bit about you, your family, where you're from, and how long yeah. you've been here, and where did you graduate from? Yeah, where'd you go to school? All that. Okay, so. Um, well, I have a bit of an interesting story in the sense that uh, everybody in my family is a psychiatrist. So my father uh, was trained in England and returned to, to Pakistan in um, the 60s. And I was actually born on the premises of a mental health um, asylum, as they used to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, you know, I was born in a hospital, but, you know, we lived on the asylum. That was the days when you had those... Um, tuberculosis sanitariums mm-hmm. and mental health asylums. And, and you know, you built them a little outside the city. The whole idea was that, you know, these people needed to be in a nice place. Like, and a, environment. Retreat type like a retreat type like thing. Exactly, area. yeah. And I um, grew up in the northern western Pakistan, um, which was beautiful and is beautiful uh, with the mountains and everything. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, my father, who's now 86 years old, still living is, uh, perhaps the oldest psychiatrist in Pakistan now. My goodness. So, um, I grew up literally seeing patients in our front yard and, you know, it was, it was life. It was like, um, it was a good life. It was a very good life. And, and then, uh, we moved to a bigger city because of our education and all of those. And we, I lived in Peshawar which is the border city between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So um, we lived in a time that was wonderful and beautiful. And we also lived in a time that was horrible, uh, you know, past uh, 9-11 and, you know, and around 9-11. In fact, uh, it's all problems in that area started in 1977 when the Russian invasion of Afghanistan happened. So, you know, it was, so I I grew up there. I went to medical school in Peshawar. uh, then I came over, I was, you know, I was so much connected in psychiatry all the time. Um, I initially thought maybe I'd like to become a surgeon and I did try to go to surgery and felt a little not so excited because um, psychiatry offered more, like every more human challenge. being was so much, so much more different. And you got joy from helping them. And, right? and it was so much fun to actually get to know people, understand people. It was a bit more fun. And maybe I was kind of poised for it or, or ready for it, hearing my my family. My mother was a general physician, but she ended up working in psychiatry with my father. They were developing their own group practice, apart from his work in the in the medical school, local medical school. So, But in, in 1989, 90, when I graduated from the medical school, um, I spent a year mountaineering. And then I, uh, that was my passion and hobby for a long time. And uh, I was a rock climbing instructor for a while. And wow. then wow. Um, I came to America uh, and um, came to Boston. And um, I was lucky enough to, you know, get to Harvard Medical School's program for uh, residency training. And I spent um, six years in America, um, you know, in Boston. Boston became my other home. Um, in 1999, I decided I'm going to go back to Pakistan because, you know, I just was um, fascinated by what I could do. And also the biggest mountains were there. So yeah. um, uh, so I went back and I started to expand the work of my father. Um, you know, so I put in an, a little inpatient unit. Um, I was a psychodynamically psychotherapy trained psychiatrist, and I was uh, very eager to um, bring that to Pakistan. It was very unknown there. And people felt that, oh, this is not going to work there. You know, people, this is a Western thing. Yeah. Um, I would say in two years, uh, I was booked three months out. Uh, it was not a Western thing. It was a people thing. Yeah. It's a human thing. And uh, you just needed, well said. yeah, you just needed to understand that all humans, all across every single culture, 
deal with some similar things which are very central to them. Everybody wants to be loved, appreciated. Mm-hmm. Everybody fears others. Everybody is anxious uh, for what may not happen or for what may happen. And so um, it was just a, an extremely rewarding experience. You know, we're going around teaching this and, and then um, trying to do the best we could. But in 1999, um, uh, I, I decided that, you know, things were a bit too rough in Pakistan and um, I felt that I wanted to come back to America. So I came back to Boston. And what year was that? 1999. So you went oh, there? Oh, sorry, sorry. 19, no, 2009. Oh, okay. 10 years yeah. later. Oh, 10 years 10 later. Years okay. later I was here. So you were over there during 9-11? Yes. All those changes in the- I did. I don't know how you would say that, but society changed a little over there, right? The culture changed around that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it it had started to change way before that, and I think 9-11 was an outcome yeah. okay. uh, of the world politic. And I, how did that I, affect you on your career? It affected us in a, in, a two, in two opposite ways. It destroyed our personal lives. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't go out running. There were bomb blasts happening every single day. I mean, wow. you know, the, the terror that we hear about in the Western world was nothing compared to what we saw every day. Yeah. Uh, schools blown up, kids killed, children every single day. Your, your, your life as a person in a society was just very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you saw the other side was that you had the highest chance or the best chance to help people because people were traumatized. And this was your work. Yeah. Uh, and it was hard work. I mean, every day you heard stories that just were not bearable at times. So it was a very, I should say, a double-edged sword. Of yeah. Something. That must be hard for somebody to want that, to be obligated to help in those situations when all you do is absorb their negativity or their their problems and try to guide them through that. That's you got to be a special person to want to do that for people. Right. It's hard for me. Yeah, (laughs) very much. So we're going to take you to the next chapter. So you came to the United States and I believe you went to uh, Massachusetts general hospital. Is that correct? Yeah. So I worked with Beth Israel Brigham and women's hospital. Oh, you did. Yeah. And and that's where I trained. I knew everybody. It was just easy. Um, Everybody knew me. Um, I had kept all in touch all through the 10 years I was in Pakistan. So it was just very nice. And then b- before that, I went to live in New Zealand, actually, for a short time. I wanted to see what New Zealand would be like. And um, But I think uh, America and Pakistan were two homes that were too close to us. And new- making another third home in New Zealand was going to be a little bit of a stretch. Okay. <laughs> So when we come back, I want to learn a little bit. What's Kyber Medical School, Medical College? Where is that at? That's in Peshawar. It's, yeah, that's in Peshawar, Pakistan. Okay, and that's where you graduated from? That's where I graduated my medical school. And you came back. And then with Massachusetts General Hospital, were you there? So Massachusetts General Hospital, I was there last, just before I I came back to Parkland. So is Parkland associated too with um, Massachusetts General Hospital? No, no, no. This evening, we've got uh, Billy Tatum and Dr. Khan, Dr. Fuad Khan. He is uh, a a, a board-certified psychiatrist in Dallas, Texas. He's affiliated with Parkland Memorial Hospital. And we have our producer, Mr. Michael Clark. And we have a guest uh, today that's watching us performing, making sure we're doing a good job. This is Roberto Perez, our sponsor. His mother, Miranda Perez, is here with us today. Welcome. She wants to give. She wants to give a report to uh, Roberto yeah, how we're she's, doing. So, she's over here looking so over Dr. Khan, thank you so much for being here. How I know about Dr. Khan, a very good friend of mine who's on the board of Parkland Hospital, Lisa Sutter. I have to thank her. The pleasure of having him yeah. here and the honor. So, so we left off that he was uh, in Boston and uh, in what, Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, and what happened after that? So, um, you know, I had come back after 10 years and I was uh, working as a associate medical director at Beth Israel Hospital in, on a psych unit. And um, somehow um, a friend of mine um, in Dallas, who is currently the, uh, um, the vice chair of, um, of psychiatry at UT Southwestern, Dr. Adam Brenner, and the residency training director, um, he called me and he said, you know, what? I think you need to come down here. And there was some issues going on at Parkland Hospital because um, 
there were some concerns and CMS was here and that was a time of difficulty for Parkland Hospital and their psychiatry emergency room needed a leadership. So I took the job. It was a little bit of a funny thing. People thought, I um, uh, am I uh, right in my head to take the job? Um, <laughs> but it was a challenging job. But, uh, was it because it was Texas? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it was one. because I mean, um, Parkland, uh, Parkland deals with the sickest of the sick, the most difficult of the difficult and, and lives in the county, you know, has to, has to work in between a lot of things. Yeah. So, um, I came and took the job later on. I was promoted as a chief and I oversaw, uh, and I was a UT Southwestern employee and I oversaw the, the, the program and also worked with CMS and, and their, uh, their concerns. And in the next four or five years, we we rolled out a very good outcome for them. Uh, basically, they blessed us with having you know done everything as good as we could, and uh, we became in 2015 uh, with the help of my team. You know, we became the first ever hospital in the United States to start doing suicide screening, um, and you know this was at all portals of entry. Every patient that came uh, was a difficult decision to take because every time you say I'm going to check somebody for something then you better know what to do if you find something yeah. and, and, and that's the biggest challenge for most healthcare systems if I discover that you have a condition I'm obligated to do something about it do I have the resources that's the big question wow. so you have a good team then right so we do have a wonderful team here and, um, and so we, we did a lot of work it was day and night uh, and and I have a I, I'm very proud to say that you know Parkland did its best to come up to support the mental health part, and um, we came out on the good side. Good, uh, yeah, good. I'm I'm happy that you're happy with your team and well, it's your going progress. Amazing. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, tell us a little bit what on, on psychiatry what what it covers. What's the 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 area and and what are the how do you get to that level of uh, when, if I come in, how do, what do you yeah. look for me? Somebody with? that's listening that might need your help. Uh, yes. What would you say? Uh, let me uh, first give you a bit of a kind of a more technical answer yes. and then more a public uh, level answer that is more um, related to human beings, you know, out in the community. So a technical level answer would be anything that has to do with psychology, counseling, psychiatry in terms of like, you know, diagnosis and medication treatment or other treatments. Um, that's all that behavioral health or mental health would cover in an institution that's delivering that service. Okay. Um, it includes social workers, mental health counselors, licensed, uh, you know, social workers, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and advanced practice nurse practitioners who specialize in this field. Um, now for a, from a perspective of, of, uh, of people, I would, I would like to say that over the last several years, the concept of what is mental health has changed and evolved mm -hmm. considerably. Um, my personal opinion is that over the years where, uh, mental health was seen as kind of separate from physical health was because of several things. And it kind of created a divide, which we are now trying to patch up as a health-related field, as a nation even now. Uh, so, uh, and as a world, all over the world, uh, you know, some countries like Bhutan uh, in 2008 or something like that came up with the National Gross Happiness Index as part of their measure of mm. Um, of huh. a country's success. It's an amazing, a small wow. third world. Oh, never thought of something that. like that. Yeah. yeah. And four or five years ago, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand actually announced that uh, her uh, country's uh, measure of success would include mental health measures. So I think the world over, there's a realization that um, that mental health, as we saw in our own imagination, which was based on perhaps more movies and, and books, you know, that this is related to a person who's dangerous to the community, who's, a, who's psychiatrically ill and needs to be in an asylum or in a, in a hospital like that, that has completely changed now. And we see everyday people who are facing stress, 
worrying about today, uh, sad about yesterday, uh, that all of that encompasses mental health. And um, the way I'd like to put it is that, um, that we expect every human being who's different from the other to more or less be comfortable and be on top of their whatever they want to do. So if I say I'm a, let's say, 25-year-old young man, I should be more or less on top of what career I want to develop, what relationships I'm going in. Do I have enough friends? Do I enjoy the day? Do I do my activities to the degree that's considered that I did my best? Can I enjoy my hobbies? Um, Can I end up going to bed at night and actually fall asleep without worrying too much about tomorrow? Um, that's a kind of a general ballpark where I would say, let's think about being healthy, mentally healthy. Um, now I want to emphasize having some anxiety, having some sadness, it's normal. It's like having a blood pressure. You know, when you're being chased by a dog, your blood pressure should go up, yeah. uh, but it should come down and there's no more threat. Uh, same thing for, anxiety, depression, and uh, you should be anxious about your studies. If you're not, you're not never going to pass an exam. You should be anxious about getting to work on time. Anxiety can be healthy at times. It's healthy. It can drive you. It can drive you. It can focus you. It can help you not get distracted. Uh, but when it becomes too much and comes in the way, so now you're so anxious that you can't perform, you can't talk, you can't take your exam, you start to flounder. That's where it says it's gone a little bit beyond what you want. Now, if you have a tragedy, if you're not sad, I'll, I'll, I'll be worried about you. Yeah. you know. Uh, but if you don't bounce back, more or less, depending on the level or intensity or the type of tragedy, I would say there's something wrong. So in a technical way, I sometimes say a sadness that doesn't get out of you wow. is depression. Speaking. Wow. So uh, I, I separate it out in a technical way. I mean, and we, that brings the anxiety, which right. pretty much put, stops you in your tracks. It does. Yeah. And it's there's a, I mean, we're talking anxiety and depression, and I can talk about schizophrenia and other things also, but you know, the anxiety and depression we face every, everybody. It's a pretty there's, common thing, right? Uh, yes. They say that in, in general, 35 to 40% of people in the current world will have some kind of a mental health issue that they needed to pay attention to. And I'm not surprised. I mean, how many of us start to look at our cholesterol at the age of 50, right? Pretty much everybody. I'm looking by now. <laughs> right. So, so it's the same story with mental health. I mean, um, and I think, uh, as Alexander, you remarked a little while ago, the world has become a very big melting pot. And we used to think of America as melting pot. Now the world is a melting pot. I agree. Uh, we have um, information going everywhere. We're not in competition with the na- next door neighbor. We're not um, making friends in the local school. Our friends are across the world on through the social media. We have more information daily. A thing has barely happened anywhere. It's all over Facebook. It's all over yep. the news. Mm-hmm. So we are being bombarded with information 10 times more than, you know, maybe 50 years ago. And it can be a bad or a good thing? It can be bad and it can be a good thing. I mean, maybe you all have found so many old long lost friends through Facebook. But also, if you hear of something negative every day, it adds a pinch. It adds a pinch that you have to reckon with. Yeah. That's why I admire you and people that do what you do. You know, you're you're getting pinched every day. and overseeing it, getting through it. So I have a question, doctor, on the young, today's society. Uh, we went through just COVID and a lot of our families and children have been locked in sp- small spaces. And is mental health, when you say mental health problem, is it sounds like it's a dirty word for a lot of people because you assume right away. Tell me a little bit, when you, this COVID situation, what has it brought to our society today? our children especially, because it shows that there's issues with our young kids. They, they're they anxious. They're, uh, I see more and more people committing suicides. Where, where are we in that situation? What's happening to our, uh, to our whole family unions here? Um, let me back up with um, 
with something that you just said, which is that uh, what is the um, concept of mental health nowadays in terms of like, how do you experience yourself as healthy? Human beings are social animals. Um, we relate to people. We relate to ourselves as also. We think of ourselves as an ideal. We should be doing this. We will be happy with this. I will be happy if I am with my friends or my family. COVID did this thing to us that it robbed us of our little niches that were the supportive niches. So, you know, people, I was surprised when I was talking to some doctors in New Hampshire and the young single guys and single, you know, female doctors mm -hmm. and single men, they were the hardest hit in some ways. Because most people who all of us who would go home, of course, we were worried about our kids. So we would, you know, take the masks off outside, clean ourselves and then go inside the house because we'd been exposed mm. in the hospital. Yeah. But at least we would be with our family. Yeah. The young people said to me, hey, you don't know what's happening to us. We used to after this, we used to go to the gym or a restaurant or a bar or would gather and play golf, you know, with our friends and all of it, it's gone. Where we go home, it's our single four walls of the apartment and we're, or, or the house, and we're living there. And then, you know, patients who were admitted, you couldn't have their families with them. You know, who does not want to have a family yeah. member to it hold your hand? crazy just thinking about that. I right. had my family and wife during that time. Right. So I understand that. Yeah. Then kids were robbed of their friendships, schools, a place that, where they want to have fun. And then parents were had to stay home to take care of their kids. Now... Let's be honest. I mean, kids are such a wonderful thing, but yes, they, they can drive you crazy, mm -hmm. um, especially if they have, if they're confined in four walls. I mean, uh, and then, so our typical response was, okay, hand them over a phone or a tablet or to play with mm -hmm. a, a thing. And we all know that there's more and more studies coming around that exposure to screen can actually reduce the ability to solve problems you know when you get fed some nice thing you don't learn how to make nice things for yourself you take a tablet away from the child and they'll be as angry as you take heroin away from an addict sometimes it oh. is true yeah. i've seen it happen right. yes, oh, yeah. because yes. it works on the same same reward structures in the brain but if you take it away long enough the kids will find a way to be happy maybe they'll craft out a little little play toy with couple of pieces of wood or, you know, a little thing. I mean, I, I remember when we would take away, uh, you know, our, our tablets from our, our kids, they would even use our shoes to say these, these are tanks and cars and, you know, yeah. and water bottles. Yeah. And so, so you know, I, I think COVID did it so many different ways. But one other way was the uh, anxiety of the unknown. With COVID, nobody could predict what's about to yeah. happen. And nobody wants to live in that anxiety. And it wasn't just COVID. It was everything that came as came a result with of it. Yeah. logistics, shipping. I'm, am I going to keep my job? Yeah, jobs, the food in the stores yeah. missing. Now it's baby formula. One thing after another. Right. As life it's a continuation, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and a, lot of, a lot of people had to stop working and they were all in one, in one pocket. The parents, the children, and yeah. they didn't have anywhere to express their their. Anxieties, I guess. Okay. That's the biggest problem. Yep. We're joined this evening with Dr. Fode Khan from Parkland Hospital, Billy Tatum, Hello. and uh, I are sitting here and joined this evening talking about a very important issue, mental health. And it is sometimes a word that people don't want to know, hear about it, but it is, it's a fact. And yeah. I think it's not a dirty word. It's a real true word. Yeah. Right, Dr. Khan? What do you I, I think um, I, I think this is important to discuss that the the dirty word. Um, let me let me tell you what I think happens is that we human beings are organized around thinking about ourselves in a certain way. So let's say if I have a liver problem or if I have a bone bony deformity or if I have a heart disease, we tend to think organ. We say my heart has a problem or my liver is not functioning well. Or my leg is just crooked or something like As that. As if it were a separate entity. As it is a separate entity. You don't, you're not responsible for it entirely. I mean, you may be because, you know, you, you may not keep your diet well or something like that, but you're not entirely responsible. 
But you would never hear people saying, my brain has depression. Everybody says, I have depression. Nice. So there's a, there's a distinction here. Whereas you can think that the organs in your body are organs and they are responsible as if themselves to take care of, of the body and contribute, the brain becomes you. So if somebody says, hey, my liver is bad, you feel sorry for them, the liver is not supporting them. But when it comes to brain, people say, I'm a wreck. They don't say my brain mm-hmm. is a wreck. They don't say my brain suffers from anxiety. They say, I'm an anxious person. So the illnesses of the brain become identified into you as a person. And you as a person have an identity that becomes responsible. It's very similar to, uh, you know, your, your opinion of yourself. It's very similar. So, so people tend to take it. So if I say to, to, to Billy that, you know, hey, you'd better take care of this heart. You know, your heart is not functioning well. It, it won't be seen as a direct insult. But if he's anxious and I'll say, hey, what's, why are you losing it? Mm-hmm. it? I'm not saying to his brain, hey, why is your brain losing it? I'm saying it to him and he'll take it personally. So mental health becomes a very much identified into you as a person. And, and people tend to not like this when you say you are a wreck. If they were to say your brain is a wreck, at least you're not attacking them. Yeah. So, you know, when people start to think of brain as not brain, but them as a whole, the stigma is, is very likely to happen. Then there were other, you know, situations where there were people, you know, one aspect why it's called behavioral health is because your thoughts affect your behavior. And there have been times where have, we have certain illnesses where people are, do not think realistically. Um, and we call them the psychotic group of illnesses. It's a smaller subset, uh, but they're very prominent. You see these people on the streets with doing bizarre things, or they may be aggressive, agitated, beyond reason. So people used to worry about them, and there was the beginning of this whole concept of asylums. Asylum was to actually safeguard these people who were exposed to the society. People think... Actually, many times I, when I talk to people, in general, people think asylums were because the public was to be kept safe. Mm-hmm. That is the impression most of us have. The reality is, it's the mental health patients who are the biggest victims of all crimes. Of mm-hmm. you know, They're the ones whose family would rob them of their money. They will be the more victims of violence, rape, you know, all of those things. Uh, so... They were in those asylums, but asylums became a containment structure because there was no way to treat them really until 1950s uh, when in 1954 chlorpromazine arrived and, and the first medication arrived. So, so the whole concept became stigmatized. And then we were also worried as healthcare forces that we said, let's keep their diagnosis secret. So actually uh, mental health diagnoses are kept at a higher level of confidentiality mm. than general diagnoses. So in some ways, we are also buying into the argument as healthcare. I mean, we have a good intent there. Um, and, but all of this leads to a stigma and there's reluctance on the part of people exactly. to, to actually get in there. The other issue is the, the disparity of, of, of of how money is money supports the system um mental health you typically need a few visits nowadays with very high insurance you know uh deductibles it's very hard for people to go for that um and it, it becomes a challenge so in all of this what happens is that mental health typically the time it's detected and treated for those that it does is eight to 10 years after the onset of the illness. Oh my goodness. Wow. Mm. It's, a, it's a terrible number. It can really creep up on you then. Yes, wow. it can. Yes, it and, can. and the other part is most people also don't uh, actually see this, but the reality is most psychiatric illnesses are pediatric illnesses. They start early between, you know, between the ages of 12, 14, 16, 18. They just manifest themselves when the person is thrown out into the world on their own, like 17, 18, you have now to have a career. You have to keep your family. You're no longer supported by parents as much. You have burdens now. And the, the, the weaknesses that were evolving over the last five, seven years 
now make it happen in in real life and you start to feel depressed anxious worried whatever so the emphasis is on on understanding that first of all there's nothing wrong in having something wrong we have to start to think about it that my brain is my brain it's not just me you know all alone it's part of you and it can have things genetics hold a big big role in uh the same sadness um will bring me down and not bring billy down uh even though we may have had the same experience of life except that our genes were different so genetics play a big role so it's a combination of genetics and environment a big tragedy will bring the most robust genetics into depression and a a, a very problematic genetic makeup can bring the smallest tragedy to make you have depression so it's a combination um and uh for for people to realize that uh hey i'm suffering it immediately goes into this that people will think i am a problem instead of that one of my organs is not functioning the way it should so i i encourage people to think that way that's nice that is wonderful so dr found uh, what happens when you have children or, or parents bring children to you, to you how do you um how do you analyze them? How do you get to, to, to talk to them? How, what's the process to bring a child? Because I see that you're interested in, in uh, screening, mental health screening for all $50,000 county kids. Do parents allow you to do that? Do you go to the schools? What's the process on this? And I think that's a very good thing that, uh, to be done. Because if you notice that our, our younger children, they're becoming more and more serious uh, happenings in, in life that is causing crimes, uh, parents not get along with children. I mean, it's just a very mental situation is getting worse. I, I think as, um, I think it's very important for us to educate our world and families and people that we all know uh, when an injury happens. Uh, if somebody has a road accident and their leg gets broken, the child is not going to be able to run. So we know he's going to lose out on developing his running. We don't think the same way in terms of uh, mental health, but we hope that we will be able to help people understand that. So what is that that we are looking for? Um, schools are a major area where we we should pay attention to. Parkland is uh, aligning with Dallas Independent School District, and, and we're going to start to work with them. We actually have started um, that there's kids who are not performing in school. What could it be? Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Do they have an ADHD or ADD yeah. or autism or any one of those illnesses? Many times what happens is it's not just the illness. So a kid who has ADHD cannot sit on the chair and cannot concentrate, performs poorly. What, does, what happens to him? He gets reprimanded more. He, gets, he fails more. And that becomes his identity. And that becomes his identity, exactly. Yeah. And, and the ability to be to love success, to work for success, becomes harder and harder for these kids. So we are already tarnishing their personality structure if we don't attend to it early. Before. Wow. Wow, before they even get to where they're going. It, it reminds yeah. me a lot of things Jody Wallace said in here once. And, yes, you know, very. Identity-forming that's that's things, very true. Identity, behavioral yes. habits. Yeah, I like it. We have a very uh, unusual evening. We're talking about a very important subject called mental health. And I know a lot of people think that is a dirty word, but unfortunately, it is a reality. And this evening, we have Dr. Faud Khan from uh, Parkland Hospital, who is a psychiatrist, and he's joining us and talking a little bit about the issues of, of, of people and mental health and children. And so we're going to bring him back and uh, continue this conversation of schools, they, uh, of, of learning a little bit about the children in school and their counselors, how they work with the mental health situations. So, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for being here this evening. We really appreciate you taking your time from a very busy schedule to come and join us on this show. And so we appreciate Miller, Miller Title to bring, allow us to oh, bring yeah. people you. like him to, to the shows and, and talk about situations like this. So, so we're talking about your uh, mental health, the children being um, uh, synchronized in school for mental health. And how are you doing this? So, um, 
let me let me say a couple of things. Um, like I said something about how the brain, we can't separate the brain and we think of the brain illness as our illness. Same thing happens with families. When parents realize that their child is not doing well, they start to not think of this child's brain not mm. doing well. They start to say the child is a problem or irresponsible or not a good actor. But what, when they extend it to themselves as well, they start to say, I as a parent have failed. Or maybe there's something wrong. So the, the blame keeps, it, first of all, the blame erupts. There's a blame thing. Either the kid is the problem or I may be coded as a problem parent. So they're very concerned and anxious at times to go to a, a, a psychologist. And the psychologist says, well, tell me what's happening at your home. And they immediately are on the defensive. Now I'm going to be scrutinized. Now I'm going to be, so, so a lot of parents, and then sometimes parents will have unusual expectations of their kids because they're, they're thinking of the other family's kids. They're thinking of their sister's kids or brother's kids. And so people get into this mode of like not remaining objective and very likely to develop a guilt. Guilt and shame, I think, are the two biggest issues that, you know, drive people mm-hmm. daily crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So if my kid is not performing at school, it's either the kid and I'm ashamed of him or it's me who's the guilty one for not having paid attention to the kid. Or I'm afraid that if I go to the doctor, he's going to say, well, what's wrong with you guys at home? Mm-hmm. All of this, when it gets mixed up, increases the reluctance for people to engage. And it's part of the skill set of, uh, of the people who engage you to first target the potential of this guilt or the shame that you may have. And I think the difference between a good professional and a not very experienced professional would be that, a, that we sometimes don't take into account that the parent is already coming in with a lot of trepidation and anxiety mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I may be seen as the, the problem. The problem. So, so we have to attend to that. So of course, children and families are inseparable. You have to deal with both of them. You have to educate both of them. Both of them would require separate approaches and a combined approach. And how do you achieve that is, is the skill set. Wow. I like that. So when you're, when mental health screening, how, what is it that you're looking on a screening on an adult or a child? What, what does that mean, mental so health at, screening? At Parkland, for example, we're going to start using a pediatric symptom checklist 17. It's a tool. I mean, it, it asks several questions, which the parents and the kid can, can answer. And you screen for depression, anxiety, and some other symptoms. And there's a lot of screens. Parkland has built several screens depending on, you do a first preliminary screen, let's say, and you, you get a whiff of depression or anxiety or ADHD, for example. Then you take the next step. Now, with these good screening tools, you can pick up these problems way early uh, because before that, they remain like he's an irresponsible child or a, or a or slow child or or he's not just getting it. And it changes to this child has problem with a certain type of learning or has a problem with ADHD or is suffering from depressive disorder. And it starts to become organized and you start paying attention to it. Once you start paying attention to it, the kid bounces back. I mean, kids are extremely resilient. And we have to give them that chance. So with screening, you do what is the, what's the first and the foremost thing that I think we are trying to do, identify early before it impacts personality. Yeah. You know, you just wow. said something a minute ago when Billy was talking about him and his brother. Uh, you were, he was kind of lax on what he was doing. Or Yeah, he just had a more easygoing approach to things. Although... He wasn't lacking anywhere in, in intellect. He just had a different approach to things. And it could have been addressed early on to get him through school a little easier. Yeah. So this are, so you, you're right. So it starts in school. It starts in the thing. So you're, I see that the, your uh, Parkland Hospital is planning on screening for all 50,000 50, Dallas County kids it serves. What is the process? Do I, as a parent, allow you to do that? Or t- could you tell me how is that going to work? So... The best approach for us is 
through school systems and pediatricians. So people come in with a well child visit to their pediatrician. They have to get, you know, vaccinations and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're encouraging our pediatricians to use screenings on all patients. Uh, mm. the, next, the other best approach is picking it up at school. So Dallas ISD, for example, has a good counselor system and they are now becoming way more organized in approaching them and they want to approach it methodically. So they, let's say they pick up a condition. Now they have options to link up with Parkland and see if they need psychiatric help, if they need more detailed evaluations. They need confirmation of diagnosis. We also have to remember that let's say I suspect a child, let's say I'm a teacher, Mm -hmm. I suspect a child that he or she has ADHD. I want to give them services, but I have to get a confirmation of the diagnosis through some kind of testing. This is something we can offer. We can try to build some systems, and we are working on such things, that can we help them confirm the diagnosis? Because these kids do need that diagnosis to get the social services, the school support systems to enable them to, you know, deliver the resources there. So so all kinds of things start to happen. Now with parents, if a parent is worried about their child, they typically will go and, you know, research shows, evidence-based shows that uh, parents will have a higher chance of trusting their pediatricians rather than, jump and go and see a psychiatrist. So the key, and and this goes, um, I I don't want to distract too much from the kid part, but when we look at the suicides Mm. and we look at the last one year of pre-suicide time, 70 or more, 77, I think, percent of people had shown up in their primary doctor's appointment at Mm -hmm. some point. Mm-hmm. as opposed to 40 or 50% in the emergency department or 20 or 30 would shown up at a psychiatrist's office. That tells you that the primary care doctors, and my primary care doctors will not be very happy with me saying that, but we are burdening them quite a lot nowadays. We want them to look at pediatric screening. We want them to look for suicide. We want them to look for depression. Pedi- my, my PCP friends are, are overwhelmed with the burden we're putting on them, so we need to provide them with a lot of resource. We expect them to churn out patients and, and see sure. quick and, yeah. and deal with things. But we are also asking them this huge, I would say, social need or a psychosocial need. Hey, check everybody for depression. Check every child for so depression. So now you're putting exactly. a bigger burden on them. We are. And, and, and they, are, um, they are also in need of support from all quarters, you know, whether it's health care systems and all of those you know, I was, I was just thinking with people being reserved on wanting to talk about it. Do you think bringing it into the schools would help children understand that this is something they don't have to hide as they get older? If if they're affected, that they need to speak and seek help. Absolutely, more awareness. Absolutely, I guess. absolutely. Yeah, I we have to destigmatize it. We have to make it focus more on the organ. We have to help people understand that it's not their fault. We have to support them in this. It, something can be done. Good stories always help. And I know that one of the good things the social media does is that there are some good success stories also that you hear. But I think it's people like you who 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 focus on this thing. I mean, I can deliver a service. I can see a patient. But I can't do what you guys are doing, which is, I think, perhaps the higher need at this time. That Awareness. We, awareness. Okay. Awareness. Absolutely. Well, this has been an exciting evening. I hope we can invite you back again because we can continue this conversation and go yeah. into further, maybe into the um, um, parents and, and also um, do you do correctional uh, uh, juveniles uh, centers and stuff like this? Because this really, this is a great conversation. That would be a uh, great idea. A do great you, idea. Do you deal with juvenile We do. Criminal Directly stuff? or indirectly, we do. We're part of, uh, you know, uh, a bigger team. Right. UT Southwestern has a uh, a dedicated team for forensic psychiatry. Um, uh, we, we Parkland is involved in providing behavioral health to uh, the Dallas County Jail. Jail, so, yes. Okay. You know, well, Doctor, so County Hospital. Yeah, so that kind yeah. of works yeah. hand in yeah. hand. Okay. Doctor Khan, we're coming to the end of our evening, so we'd like to ask you to please put in your calendar to come back to us 
uh, please give a, do, do people get in touch with you? Do, can they see you? Can they visit with you? Is the, uh, can they? Uh, I'm always happy to receive people and, and see people. Just sometimes it's the time constraint of the reality of life. Well, yeah, thank you that, so much for well, being have here. You important job, too, to, to manage. Dr. Faud Khan, Chief of Psychiatry for Parkland Hospital, Dallas. Thank you, Ms. Lisa Sutter, for bringing him to our attention. Billy, yeah. it was a great evening. Uh, I'd like to bring him back again. I think so. There's and, a lot uh, more unspoken here. Yes. Just an hour may not be enough time. Do you have any um, information that you can let the parents or us know about what we need to look at? Well, anything? I want to just say to everybody that please don't be afraid to feel afraid. Very good. Yeah. And and come over and, and talk. talk. Start talking to the one you trust. Start with the school counselor. Start with the teacher. Start with your pediatrician. But start. Thank you so yes. very much. We appreciate you very much being here this evening. Billy, thank you for yes, being ma'am. here today. And we uh, look forward to the next conversation on mental health. And remember, that's not a dirty word. It is a situation you really need to look into. We ask, we thank Miller Tuttle for being uh, giving us this opportunity and Joe Guillen with Old House Barbecue. And we have uh, Roberto Perez, Miranda Perez here this evening with, uh, joining us for our little group. And we thank you again for joining us tonight. Don't forget to go to Alexander and Friends 660 The Answer on your Facebook and alexandraandfriends.com on our website and go to any of our podcasts and listen to Alexander and Friends. Follow me on Alexander and Friends and click let me know what you think of our program. Have a good evening. Hey, soy Jose Guillén, dueño de Old House Barbecue y patrocinamos el show de Alejandra y Friends. Nuestros dos lugares están en Carrollton y Louisville. Nuestra página web es oldhousebarbecue.com. Vengan a vernos. You've been listening to Alexandra and Friends, the podcast. Reach out to us on Facebook at Alexandra and Friends or write us an email, alexandraandfriends660 at gmail.com. Be sure to mark us as one of your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode.